You're listening to K-Squid, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Many voices, community radio. This is Story Behind the Story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is poet and essayist Elisa Gabbard. We're talking about her new book, The Unreality of Memory, a collection of essays about disasters, pain, and empathy that came out this past August. It has received rave reviews in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Book Page, and Kirkus Reviews to name just a few. I read about it first in The Nation in a review so laudatory I had trouble believing anything could live up to its praises. And yet, the unreality of memory does. Elisa Gabbert, I am delighted to welcome you to Story Behind the Story. Thank you so much for having me. So I think we'll, we'll just dive straight in, that you cover a lot of territory in the unreality of memory. Most reviews have homed in on the disaster component of it, which I suspect has a lot to do with the fact that it came out amid a pandemic. And for most of the West, at least where you and I live, a spectacularly catastrophic fire season. So it, it seems inevitable that over the coming years and decades, we're gonna experience more of these moments where we're dealing with multiple large scale crises at the same time. Is compassion fatigue fussing out inevitable as well, or are there other healthier ways you see for us to adapt? Oh gosh, yeah, it's really overwhelming. <laughs> I, I did. It, you know, it's funny when people say to me, oh, "Like, how could you have known? You know, <laughs> how could you have known that you'd be releasing a book in the midst of all these disasters?" And I think, well, there were disasters happening four years ago when I started writing the book. Um, it, it seemed very obvious to me that they were going to continue to get worse. You know, my dream is that they're getting worse before some period of getting better, but I have no idea when mm-hmm. <laughs> when things will actually get better. Um, so yeah, it's, it still feels to me like <laughs> all of this was easy to foresee um, the second that we elected Donald Trump. Of course, Things were bad in multiple ways even um, before that, but that really seemed to push things over the edge into, there was just this sense that everything had gotten completely out of control. (laughs) Um, And I've I've had recurring periods of just something like apathy. Hmm. It's it's not truly apathy because, you know, I've, I've never stopped wanting to try to make things better in some way to fight and to, you know, raise awareness of the issues that I care about. But um, it does just get so overwhelming. I think there's something very natural in sort of shutting down emotionally and needing to take a break. And I don't think that we should feel overly guilty about it. There's not much use value to, <laughs> to, to guilt after at a certain point. Um, Mm. But at the same time, if we're too forgiving of ourselves, then it's very easy to just say, I'm, I'm doing self-care this year. (laughs) No more, no more activism. So um, yeah, I've, I, I still struggle to find the balance, I guess I should say between, you know, how much, how much can I care? How many multiple issues can I care about? And what does that care actually look like? Is, you know, is it just me losing sleep at night or am I able to do something useful? Is there something actionable about it? So this is your fifth published essay collection. What draws you to that medium? So this is actually my second um, published essay collection. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, that's okay. My first three books were, they're usually classified as poetry. My, my second book is kind of arguably a book length essay or a fragmentary essay it is or or prose poetry i i always feel 
kind of uncomfortable committing to a genre with that one because um, hmm. I don't know. I, I think genre can be a little bit choose your own adventure sometimes. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is my second collection of poetry. And, you know, I've always written a lot of prose. I think that's just sort of the, the default mode of, of writing <laughs> in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I've been lucky and surprised to find that I've just been able to reach more readers. Um, I don't know. I don't know why that should be surprising. Not as many people read poetry <laughs> as read prose. Uh, I remember hearing the poet Mary Ruffel, the great poet Mary Ruffel, once say that um, poetry is private, but prose is public. And she mm. has also found many more readers through publishing books of essays or prose um, than she had through her poetry. And people always think it's kind of novel or that there's some kind of good trivia into just mentioning (laughs) oh this this book is by a poet I feel like it often comes (laughs) up in my reviews and it's it's usually said with great respect as though you know of of course if a poet wrote this it's going to be well written the prose is going to be beautiful Um, and that always delights me and you know I guess my fear would always be that somebody would be very suspicious (laughs) like (laughs) why would I buy a book of prose by a poet? Like, she's not going to know what she's doing. (laughs) That's such a funny, that's such a funny concept to me that uh, we sort of, especially reading a book like this where you do cover so many different domains of knowledge and in so much detail that we would have that, I guess that belief or that fear that like we would be perceived too much as our domain being specialized and narrow and uh, it would be impossible for someone who is very good in one particular area to have any expertise in any other. Yeah. I, I did have somebody ask me in an interview about a month ago um, about just the question of expertise and, you know, what am I bringing to this material not being an expert, <laughs> which I thought was um, kind of funny, but I, I appreciated it because my, my great fear was that someone would ask me, so how do you think we can solve climate change or, <laughs> you know, how can we end war? <laughs> and I would have to say, no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not an expert in, uh, in foreign policy. I'm not an expert in, climate science or anything yeah. really. I'm, I'm not an expert. Um, I, you know, maybe arguably I'm an expert at writing poetry, but even that I don't really feel comfortable saying that I'm an expert in. So yeah, I think what I, what I bring to this material is just that kind of wide ranging roving interest that, yeah. you know, I read so many in so many different disciplines and my interests are so broad that I'm able to kind of make connections between things that you know, an expert might not see if, if they're just always immersed in really one subject all the time. Well, and there's a, there's a line or I guess a set of lines in the title essay of this book. Um, you write, on the one hand, it's dangerous to treat the Holocaust as a singular aberration in terms of failure of cultural morality because it's happened, it cannot happen again. On the other, isn't it dangerous to treat genocide as a run-of-the-mill inevitability because it has happened, it certainly will happen again. And for me, I found this really fascinating because you you talk a lot in the book about the limits of empathy, but it seems like that sums up the limits of something else, the limits of the way that knowledge, understanding, or context can move us to action, can motivate change. And I found it, I mean, personally very unsettling, but also very resonant, right? Like talking about this idea of expertise, 
okay, we can be experts in the knowledge, but what, what does that do for us? Yeah, I think a lot about sort of what all this knowledge actually does for us. And mm-hmm. I try to be careful not to sound too too doomsday-ish, you mm. know, <laughs> too, too sort of committed to some sense of determinism where, well, you know, it's too late, it's all over. We, we can't really, we can't really change anything. But I do find that like, sometimes it feels like we've come to this point where it doesn't feel like we're truly making progress anymore. We're just sort of spinning mm-hmm. our wheels. Um, because like, for example, like weather science it has gotten so amazing that, you know, we can, we know exactly when a storm is approaching and where it's going to go and its path, how severe it's going to be. But then, you know, that predictive power, I guess it's good to know. (laughs) It's good to see it coming, but then we're still bad at preparing. We're really bad at disaster recovery. So we just, you know, I'm I'm thinking about like hurricane season, of course, you know, hurricanes come in and there's all this damage that, you know, maybe we saw coming, but then if we're not able to coalesce the resources to help the people and the communities that are then destroyed by these storms, it sort of feels like all that science and all that predictive power is kind of a waste. Yeah. Well, and you, you say in one of your essays, you talk about the fact that um, we've known everything we know about climate change now. We, we knew all that in the 70s. And that's a thing. I actually only discovered that earlier this year, reading a book about um, Octavia Butler and all and that like contained information from her notes where she's reporting the same exact things, right? Like we've, we've known this and we're going to continue to know this and nobody's doing anything about it. I just find that so fascinating that like, I feel like we almost can't process the knowledge that we've known it for so long. Yeah. Yeah. It seems impossible. And it it just, it feels like it's taken this long, what, 50 years for everyone to just finally accept (laughs) like, oh, okay. Yeah. I guess this, this can't be denied anymore. This is true. This is happening after all that, now there's this feeling of like, oh, but is it actually too late? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now that we all finally agree this is really bad and um, it's our fault and we are the ones who have to fix it. Um, there's already this sense that, oh God, it might be too late. We already might be past this kind of tipping point where <laughs> there's nothing we can do, which that's really what I was trying to process with this book. Not so much disasters themselves as like, why are we just so bad. <laughs> why, why are we so bad as a species, I want to say? I mean, I, I kind of think Americans are maybe uniquely bad at it, but I feel like this is sort of a human problem <laughs> that we're really, really bad at preventing disasters, um, <laughs> minimizing them, really just just anything. It's the, the question that haunted me, I think it is a line in the book, is why can't we or won't we save ourselves? Because sometimes it feels like we willfully just won't. <laughs> it's not that we can't, but we won't. Yeah, and I wonder how much of that is related to that feeling of overwhelm, right? That these problems are so big that they're, in addition to the sort of scale issues, there are coordination issues. Yeah, it's it feels so difficult as to be impossible. I, I'm remembering um, there's this passage I love, and my friend, uh, the writer Brandon Taylor, you've probably heard about 
his novel, Real Life, it's getting a lot of attention. So shortlisted for a Booker Prize. Um, but I read it right when it came out. And um, there's this passage where the protagonist is a grad student working in a lab and he's doing this very complicated, long experiment with nematodes um, and something goes wrong with them. And he's ta- he's thinking through the idea that like, he knows he has to redo it and it's just going to be so mm. overwhelming. And like the fact that it's doable and not, not doable is what makes it so terrible <laughs> is yeah. because, because if it was truly impossible, then he could just give up. Yeah. But he knows that he, he does have to do it and that he can do it. And I think that's something that we all sort of succumb to is this, this kind of fantasy that it is impossible um, to solve these problems that it's too late to make a difference in terms of climate change. So we might as well kind of give up and be happy and be free. So yeah, it's this weird, it's this weird kind of wish for the true apocalypse because it just, that would let us off the hook. You know, it's it's sort of interesting that you bring that up, the sort of impossibility. Um, I just reread a book I loved as a child, The Phantom Tollbooth, because um, I needed a break from all the disaster <laughs> uh, yeah. as well. And there's a conversation near the end of that where they're telling Milo, they tell Milo, there was something that we couldn't, we can't tell you until you have accomplished this task. And he comes to the end of it and they say, okay, we're going to tell you now what it was. This was impossible. <laughs> and I think there's something, it, it's sort of interesting to me, that's obviously, you know, a nearly 60 year old book at this point. But I've been seeing like a lot of that in media now too, the sort of obsession with impossibility as both a limiting and a freeing factor. Like I think about The Good Place when uh, Eleanor says our fates are sealed, but we have one move left, we can try. (laughs) Maybe there is, maybe we can look at it as impossible and find that as a galvanizing force as well. Uh-huh. <laughs> there is this also like, I mean, I think that we're we're all more and more given to kind of just fantastical thinking. Like mm-hmm. I remember I remember in the period after the election, but while Obama was still in office, this sort of sense that, you know, maybe he he could save us somehow. Maybe, <laughs> maybe he could like fix the election. <laughs> you know, like I don't I don't even know exactly what we were imagining, but there is just this you know, very childish, childlike Mm. wish for like somebody to be like the adult, the parent, like, (laughs) because we feel so helpless and just wanting someone with more power or knowledge than us to, to do something. And it's so frightening to realize that there's nobody else to save us. (laughs) Like we have to do it. Um, well, let's return to the writing for a moment. You you mentioned that you're also a poet, and I, th- I found it really interesting that you said that the, there's a book of yours that you have trouble categorizing um, as poetry or as essays or as so- something in the middle. So that, that made me interested in how your poetry informs the way that you write prose and vice versa. I think being a poet makes me very attuned to micro effects. So... Mm-hmm the specific kind of sound (laughs) that like the quality of the pause, for example, between the difference between a comma versus a period versus a semicolon versus Mm. an M dash. I find those all to be slightly different. And 
I think it matters, <laughs> you know, um, I can be very, um, very adamant sometimes when an editor wants to change something like that. And you know, what I always say is like, I promise you, I thought more about that comma than you have. <laughs> and, and I know that, you know, like sometimes a comma is sort of technically incorrect, but I, I'll be like, I know what's correct because I used to be a copy editor. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I, like, I promise you there's some kind of intentional effect I'm going for here. And of course, you, you know, you, you can't fight for every single comma <laughs> that, that an editor removes, but I, I do fight for some of them, you know, because with a poem, there are just many fewer words on the page and many fewer words in the book you are forced to pay attention to all those kind of small choices in terms of, you know, the kind of rhythm of the line and uh, how you're using white space. And so I bring almost as much attention. You can't really bring bring quite as much um, because, you know, you're trying to convey something on a larger scale, these longer sort of arguments. Um, Mm. I try not to be too argumentative in my prose, but yeah, I, I still really care about the micro effects and like, I really, I, I try to, <laughs> I try to achieve some kind of rhythm. I think um, that the unit that I'm really most interested in is the paragraph. So mm-hmm. that does sort of connect to that, that hard to define book that I was talking about that. So they're, they're prose blocks. You could call them prose poems, but you could also just think of them as paragraphs. And I, you know, I kind of wanted each paragraph in that book to hit certain notes, you might say, Mm -hmm. like I wanted them all to have an aphorism, um, like something kind of very general, but also something very personal. And then, you know, working within that kind of framework, of course, veered from it. And they're not all exactly the same, but there was a little bit of a formula. Yeah. I just, I really like the way paragraphs work, like in a long form essay, how do you move from one paragraph to the next? How do you decide? I want all this to be in one long paragraph versus two small paragraphs. I just, I find those decisions very interesting. To some extent, it's, it's hard. It's hard to even explain or justify the decisions you make. It's just like, this just feels right. And I just, I just am really interested in the way that the container of a paragraph can like hold all these different sentences and ideas and make them mean something else just because they're placed in proximity and in this particular sequence. That's fascinating. Um, Talk to me too about the process for this book. Where did you start? Where did this book start? And how did you approach these essays as a collection? Yeah. The first essay that I wrote in this book I definitely wasn't thinking of a book yet. It was just something that I was really interested in. That essay was Vanity Project. And mm. I wrote that in sort of early to mid-2016. And um, it is it had basically come about because I was reading a book called The Ego Tunnel, which I found really fascinating. It's sort of a, a sort of a cognitive science book, like part neuroscience, part philosophy. And mm. it's this I want to say German writer slash scientist um, who was making this argument that basically the self is kind of like a user interface. Um, and so this, this idea that we're kind of experiencing the world directly is inaccurate. And it's more like, it's basically like a very immersive video game <laughs> that our, that our mind is constructing. And, and the idea that you have of yourself is sort of like your avatar, and I just became really obsessed with that idea. I thought it was fascinating. I've always noticed that there are, there are times that I kind of experience myself 
outside myself in the third person. Mm-hmm. So like in a memory or in a fantasy, I'll kind of be watching myself and, instead of being, you know, inside my body. Right, right. <laughs> And so, yeah, this, this book dealt a lot with the idea that that's because we like have this little model of ourselves in our mind. And sometimes you can kind of go outside it and see yourself from the outside. And that's what's happening when you have like a classic out of body experience, which, you know, often happens like during trauma, um, Hmm. say if you're in a car accident that often happens. And so it's like, if, if there's something that's, that's really shocking to the mind, can kind of glitch out and just and and catch your avatar (laughs) from another angle and so that was the first essay I wrote and then the second essay I wrote was the first essay in the collection Magnificent Desolation and I had been sort of making notes and I was just interested in um, I got really interested in the, the Titanic for a little while and then I went through a period of just watching a bunch of like space disaster movies and documentaries. (laughs) And I I, like, I was just sort of obsessed with disaster and, you know, this was 2016, so it makes sense. And then, um, but I I didn't have really a lot of direction there until right after the election. And it, it just changed all my priorities. Like it changed what I was reading. I remember we threw out all our old New Yorkers that were sitting around that we hadn't read yet because it was like, well, that that's, these can't possibly be relevant to our lives now. That's from a different era. Yeah, there were certain books in my to-read pile that just seemed sort of frivolous or something, or just like they, they, they no longer interested me. And I completely changed what I was reading. And I decided, oh, I'm ready to write the disaster essay now. Yeah, so I started working on that. And when it was published, a friend of mine, uh, the writer Matt Salises, had told me, oh, I would read a book of these. Mm. So then I started thinking, oh, maybe I could somehow make these into a book. And then for the next several months, I, I was kind of going back and forth between wanting to write these disaster essays that are in the first section and things that are a little bit more about just like the weirdness of the human mind. Mm-hmm. Um, the memory essay was one of the early ones I wrote. And I just, I saw how it was coming together as this kind of like this look at external disasters that happen in the world and also internal disasters that are happening in our mind. And, you know, that's kind of why the external disasters happen because, um, because our minds are so, so weird. And so, um, I guess faulty when it comes, when it comes to the way we process information, um, and, and try to understand both ourselves and, and the world. Yeah. That's how it kind of started coming together slowly. And so I wrote, after I'd written, you know, maybe four or five essays, I wrote a book proposal and that forced me to try to kind of think through how it could be a coherent collection. That was tricky. It was, it was a little bit, I don't know if you've ever written a book proposal, but it's definitely <laughs> like, <laughs> there's a little bit of a faking it till you make it quality to it. Cause you have to come off sounding really convincing that you can write something that's going to turn into a good book. But I, I wasn't sure if I could. <laughs> I mean, I think though that's what's fascinating about this, especially now hearing that I would never have guessed that that was the first essay that you wrote in this collection, in part because the the disaster stuff feels like it's so central. And again, like so much of that, I think, has to do with the context into which it was published. But yeah. I do find it really stunning that the way that all these different topics you're writing about converge. So the Vanity Project that you just mentioned is about the sort of perception that we have of ourselves and how that how that meets with quote-unquote reality and like how other people see us and then you have this whole section of essays that's about 
emotion and pain and sort of the relationship between those two things. And they do really feel like they, like they're coherent, like it's a collection, like they were written together. And so I guess you sort of answered this a little bit, but I'm curious about how conscious you were about these connections as you were writing and how much they sort of arose organically for you and what the sort of like give and take of that process of creating a coherent narrative in these essays was like. Yeah. You know, I think part of that is just the natural result of the fact that I wrote them mostly over a three-year period and kind of, you know, rolling one into the other. So often what would happen is when I would start a new essay, I would find that some of my research or material that I'd had from the previous essay, it's, it felt relevant to the, this new piece I was writing as well. So there would be these little kind of overlapping links. Um, and I would sometimes, you know, use even the same quote from the same book because it just, it seemed to, it seemed equally relevant in both settings. But certainly it's just, you know, I feel like when I write an essay, it's basically a documentation of the thinking mm. that I've been doing mm-hmm. for a couple of months. And just because I finished the essay doesn't mean that the thinking stops. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, I, pro- I continue to be interested in those ideas. And um, so those threads just tend to keep emerging again and again and again. And so it's almost like, if I'm going to write a bunch of different essays over the course of three years, how could they not form, you know, a kind of cohesive and connected collection because like it's, it's my mind, my mind is present in all of the essays and I, I have the same obsessions and I Mm. keep sort of even having the same realizations over and over again or slight variations on the same (laughs) realizations. And so, yeah, I did find that I didn't really have to force the connections as much as, you know, when I set out to write a book, I thought I might have to kind of, yeah you know, shoehorn things in somehow to make it feel like, oh, these all belong in the same book. But that, yeah, it it happened much more naturally, actually. It ended up being quite organic. And yeah, and people have told me that it's, it's interesting that, you know, as you read through it, you're still kind of thinking of the previous essays each time you start a new essay. And um, yeah, so you kind of see, you kind of see the motifs that are there. As 2020 winds down, we approach the minefield of holidays with the family. If you're following public health recommendations, the holidays will be different than you've ever experienced. Fewer people will fly to be with others, and there will be fewer and smaller family gatherings. This may sound like a bummer of a holiday season, but we're here to help. Monday and Friday on Talk of the Bay, Suki Wessling and her guests offer tips for cooking your first turkey, making small gatherings more special, and connecting more meaningfully over distances. Terrified that your nuclear family will just brush off Thanksgiving? Dreading another one of those chaotic Zoom calls where everyone talks over everyone else and nothing gets said? Join us for tips and tricks from the pros. That's Talk of the Bay, Monday at 5 p.m. and Friday at 6 a.m. here on KSquid 90.7 FM and KSQD.org. Many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is author Elisa Gabbert, whose essay collection, The Unreality of Memory, came out in August of this year. Now seems like a good time to have you read an excerpt from the book and we can ground some of what we've been talking in in your actual writing. And can you just set it up a little bit for us? Tell us a little bit about what you're reading in the essay it comes from. So I think actually I'll read a little section from Vanity Project. Oh, great. Since we were just talking about it. I already set it up a little bit, but um, this, this essay starts with kind of a meditation on 
my quote unquote good side. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I also feel like this essay has become newly relevant just because everybody's on Zoom all the time. And <laughs> we all constantly have to confront these images of ourselves. And I feel like a lot of people I know have sort of had a crisis of the self over mm. it because, you know, watching yourself on video is very unnatural. Like, even if you get used to the way you look in photographs, video is something different. You don't normally see yourself talk. And I've just heard people say like, oh my God, like it's so much worse than I, <laughs> than I thought of myself. Like it's not, it's not as flattering as my own um, self image was. And that's exactly <laughs> what this essay is about. So I find that very funny. Um, I feel like I've, I, like I've already, I've already had that whole crisis. <laughs> I've gone through it and processed it. And the section that I'll be reading, um, I'm talking a little bit about that sort of avatar idea that I touched on earlier. Think of a memorable experience from your childhood. Do you embody your childhood self in the memory or do you see it as though from across the room or a bird's eye view? There is something fundamentally different about mental images drawn from memory. When you picture a friend or a celebrity, say, and your self-image. The brain seems to build a self-model, a representation of your own body within your mind, so robust that you may glimpse or even confront your own avatar in certain fringe states of consciousness. Dreams, memories, and fantasies where you watch yourself in the third person. And through the course of glitches and conscious experience, such as out-of-body experiences or autoscopy, the spooky phenomenon of seeing your own double. What we see in general is not entirely the result of vision. The mind builds a model of our environment based on sensory input, which functions well for our purposes, but is not identical with the real world. Attention and assumptions play a large role in this, which is what causes change blindness. In one well-known study, participants asked to focus on a task didn't notice when a man in a gorilla suit walked through the room. It's as though people are seeing a cached version of the world that, to save processing power, hasn't been refreshed. According to the cognitive scientist and philosopher Thomas Messenger, our mind builds not only a world model, but also a model of the self to exist in that world model, our inner avatar. In the ego tunnel, Messenger posits that we need this avatar to experience selfhood. All experience is mediated, but we don't experience the mediation as such, in part because we identify so completely with this avatar. What we experience as direct access to the actual physical world through our actual physical body is really just an extremely immersive user interface. Rather than experiencing the world directly, we move through life in a kind of continual virtual reality. This feeling of self-identification can be extended outside the body. In the famous rubber hand experiment, participants were induced to identify with a rubber hand on the table when their own hand was out of view, behind a screen. In a paper published in 1998, Matthew Botvinnik and Jonathan Cohen describe how each subject sat with eyes fixed on the rubber hand while the researchers used two small paintbrushes to stroke the rubber hand and the subject's hidden hand synchronizing the timing of the brushing as closely as possible. The subjects reported that it seemed like they were feeling the sensation of the paintbrush in view on the hand in view, the rubber hand. These results have been repeated many times. The illusion is apparently so easy to recreate that you can do it as an impromptu party trick. People who use a cane every day or have artificial limbs experience a similar illusion. They don't have to think about where the cane is, 
they completely internalize the new dimensions of their body. This provides evidence for a mental ability to identify with an avatar. It's as though selfhood can float outside the body and latch on to something else. In a typical out-of-body experience, the astral body, or doubled self, seems to exit the body through the head and hover near the ceiling so that it can view the now empty body below. Of course, you have not actually left your body. Instead, the self-model seems to be replicating. These replicants may contain errors. Metzinger mentions an epileptic who, during a seizure, saw himself from the outside, wearing the same clothes but with curiously combed hair, whereas he knew his own to be uncombed. Then there are phantom limbs. Amputees frequently continue to feel the presence of their missing limb and even feel pain in it, suggesting that the mental self-model can be so persistent and strongly ingrained that changes to the physical body are difficult to incorporate into a new mental model, that the mind is not as plastic as the body. Or perhaps it's that the sense of self expands more readily than it retracts, that the mind is resistant to reducing the scope of the self. I am reminded of the poet Anne Boyer remarking on Twitter that she did not identify with recent photos of herself because her hair was missing following treatment for breast cancer. Of course, I thought, phantom hair. How accurate then are our mental models? There's a pop psych idea that people in general, women especially, are plagued by low-level body dysmorphia, believing ourselves less attractive than we really are. But there's evidence to the contrary. One study found that people were more apt to recognize themselves in photos when their images had been enhanced, that is, photoshopped to appear more attractive. This points to an innate vanity. Maybe we prefer our mirror image to photographs, especially candid photographs, because the reflection more closely aligns with our self-model. The photograph is objective, the reflection is enhanced. Further, change blindness could explain why we appear old to ourselves on camera. We have grown old in real life, but have been blind to those changes in the mirror. Our mental model has not adjusted. My favorite variety of mirror delusion is known as negative autoscopy. When this rare condition occurs, the patient, like a vampire, cannot see their own reflection in the mirror. To me, this has devastating implications suggesting that what we see when we look in the mirror is not what is reflected at that moment, but what we expect to see, our self-model. If we sustain damage to the area of the brain responsible for the self-model, we may be unable to construct a reflection. And how much damage can the self withstand? The Kotar delusion, also known as walking corpse syndrome, is a rare disorder in which patients stop using first-person pronouns and deny their own existence. This led one sufferer, known as Mademoiselle X, to believe she wasn't capable of dying. She starved herself to death. Physiologically, it is thought to be related to the Capgra delusion, a form of prosopagnosia in which those with familiar faces are experienced as imposters. But here it is the self-face that is seen as an imposter. We no longer see or believe external confirmation that our mental self-model is real, a delusion that can lead to a catastrophic loss of self. Thank you so much for that. I find both in this essay and the set of essays and in the set of essays that is sort of about pain and emotion, there's a, a lot of discussion of sort of real versus fake. I'm using air quotes, which people on the radio can't hear. But, <laughs> you know, there, there is this sort of setup between, between perception and some kind of reality. And I think one of the things that I find so interesting about this um, it's that line about 
photographs being objective. Do you feel that they are objective? I guess they're not really because they're always sort of just a slice of reality <laughs> and then it's made two dimensional. So, I mean, photographs don't look like the real world. Hmm. Um, yeah, I think I just, I'm fascinated by that sort of othering of the self that occurs when somebody just takes, you know, a candid photo or you're sort of looking off at a weird angle that you never yeah, see yourself yeah. at. And it doesn't seem like it could possibly be be you yeah. <laughs> because you've never seen yourself from, you know, the side in that way. There's this level at which nothing is objective because, <laughs> because we're always looking at it through our subjective minds. So, you know, there's no reason really to think that we're processing the photograph as it really is any more than we're, than we're processing the mirror image as it really is, for example. Yeah, I feel like, you know, reality is always coming to us through these unreliable filters. Well, I feel like that creates this other complicated dichotomy, right? We feel like we're uniquely in this time where facts and uh, reality don't seem to have, don't seem to hold this sway that they once did um, mm-hmm. at, a, at a broad scale. And we can sort of tell the difference, right? Like we have this intuitive understanding of, okay, this is, this is a fact. This is something that is real and grounded in reality. And then we also have this knowledge that there are so many different ways of looking at things and, and of perceiving them. And it can be sort of a difficult tension to, to sit with or to resolve. Mm-hmm. How do you resolve that for yourself? I don't know that I can resolve it. You know, I think part of what um, I got so obsessed with thinking through the material in this book was just this feeling that history is not very stable Hmm. and that we feel like in the present, we know what's really happening, what we're seeing. These are facts. (laughs) Um, And, you know, the fact that people are getting their, their news from different sources can be so so maddening because this fear that you know, that people are watching Fox News and not getting like the real version of reality. But yeah, it, it feels like the more, the further you go back, um, the more you have to kind of confront the possibility that the history books aren't, aren't accurate either. And, and it was something I thought of a lot about when going through fact-checking, which, you know, this book was fact-checked and a lot of the pieces originally appeared places where they were fact-checked. And I I find fact-checking kind of fascinating because often what they're looking for is just one other source that sort of confirms what you're saying. Corroboration. Right. So if you can find a book (laughs) that has that fact in it, okay, that fact is checked. But what if that book is inaccurate because not all books Mm. are (laughs) fact-checked and you can often find, you know, multiple seemingly reliable, um, reputable sources that contradict each other. So just the sort of complexity of information, it's like what is actually happening all the time. There's too much of it for it to Mm. really be recorded completely accurately. And so there's always simplification happening um, when something becomes quote unquote history. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's one of the failures of cultural memory. Um, One of the reasons that 
we're repeating the same mistakes Mm. (laughs) that we've already made in the past century now is that feeling that history is somehow unstable um, and that people maybe don't really believe that it's true. Yeah. And I, and I have that sense, even things that I of course completely believe, you know, like I'm I'm not a Holocaust denier. I 100% know that the Holocaust happened. And yet as like fascism started kind of encroaching again in America, I didn't feel that I knew what to do. It wasn't like, Mm. well, because I've read history and, um, and said, oh, we could never let that happen again. (laughs) It doesn't, it doesn't mean that I know how to stop it. Um, so then I have to, so I, so I have to question my own questioning of like, well, how could people in the past have let that happen? How, how could they, yeah. how could they? It's like, well, what are, <laughs> they're no worse than us. It makes me think of this, um, there's a play by Alan Bennett called The History Boys. And um, there's an exchange between a teacher and a student in that where the, the teacher is talking to them about the Holocaust and trying to get them to sort of engage with it critically and, think about, I mean, I, I don't think intention, like not with the ultimate aim of like sympath- like empathizing with Nazis, but like trying to get them to maybe look at the, uh, the history as written from the other side. And a character in it who is Jewish calls him on it and the teacher says, um, this is history, distance yourselves. And the student says, but if you explain something, then you can explain it away. And there's, right, that's sort of what we're talking about here. It's that we yeah. we get this sense of history and the sense of context and the sense of the past. And rather than giving us a template for how we move forward, it just lets us shove it under a rug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm reading a, a memoir right now by a woman who was raped by one of her best friends. Mm. Um, and she, you know, some 14, 15 years later, she decided to reach out to him and talk to him about it. And she wrote this book about it. And, you know, one of the central questions of the book is, can a good person do a terrible thing? Because I think you know, she, she's, conf- she's trying to confront or contradict the sort of narrative that, you know, rapists are bad people and also doing air quotes mm. or, or monsters, which, you know, makes it seem like, like nobody knows a rapist, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. even though yeah. every every woman knows somebody who's been sexually assaulted or raped, but men don't seem to know anyone who has committed sexual assault or rape. Right. So it's like there's this, this breakdown of, well, so who are these people? And the reality is that they're not monsters. They're just normal people. And normal people can do bad things if they're in a situation where it's possible and they think that they can get away with it. And um, that's something, you know, not not in the context of sexual assaults or rape necessarily, but just in general, that was something I was thinking a lot about with my book was um, just kind of the idea of good people and bad people and how falling into those patterns of thinking, I think, can be not useful and even dangerous because I think we we excuse ourselves a lot by telling ourselves, but I'm a good person. Um, you know, my family and I were good people. You, you think that ne- ne- that necessarily means, um, well, I'm not racist and <laughs> I'm mm. not, I'm not doing anything that's, um, 
directly intentionally harming anyone. I'm a good person. But, you know, there's all these very subtle, insidious ways that we are harming other people all the time. And we just, um, we don't think about it because we think of ourselves as quote unquote good people. And, you know, and then we'll do that. We'll do the same with Nazis or, mm-hmm. um, or our Republican senators <laughs> just talk about them like they're evil and they're monsters. Um, and, you know, I, I, I do think some of them are evil. <laughs> like I do, I do think that, but it's, it's, I think it's important to, to focus it on the acts and the actions um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. less than the people themselves. Because yeah, what we, what we want is to stop people from committing evil acts. We can't right. punish people for being inherently evil. I don't, I don't think that, that that's a thing. <laughs> this Tuesday at 5 p.m. and Thursday at 6 a.m. on Talk of the Bay, Christine Barrington welcomes Rich Casal, a restoration specialist with the Natural Resources Conservation District of Santa Cruz County, to talk about preparing fire-damaged land as we head into the rainy season. Richard has 45 years of experience with post-fire restoration and has assisted communities and property owners recovering from devastating wildfire all over the state. He has visited 140 sites in Santa Cruz County since the CZU fire and will offer his suggestions and discuss the resources offered by the county and the Resource Conservation District. That's Talk of the Bay, Tuesday at 5 p.m. and Thursday at 6 a.m. here at KSquid 90.7 FM and KSQD.org. Many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is author Elisa Gabbert, whose essay collection, The Unreality of Memory, came out in August of this year. So I, I'm going to shift focus a little bit, but I, I do think it's sort of related to some of what we've been talking about. In, in The Great Mortality, which you wrote in 2018, you talk about the effects of climate change, not just on environmental disasters, but also on pandemics. So on an intellectual, at least, as, as we've discussed, you, you sort of knew what was coming if you didn't know exactly when. Has that made a difference at all in the way that you've experienced the pandemic or other disasters of this past year? Yeah, I wish I could say, I really do wish I could say that um, (laughs) I felt any more prepared for the pandemic than, you know, somebody who hadn't recently done a lot of reading about (laughs) pandemics. But um, I just, I did exactly what everybody else always does, which is, you know, you just sort of feel like this probably isn't the big one. This because you, you, <laughs> yeah. you just always think a disaster isn't really going to happen to you. Yeah. So, yeah, and I, I have a friend who I remember she seemed worried earlier than anyone else I know. And she kind of kept saying, like, are you reading these stories? Are you worried about this? This seems, this seems scary. And I was kind of like, ah, like, we've all lived through flu panics before. <laughs> like, mm. And I just, yeah, I was pretty dismissive until, um, I guess until, you know, maybe late, mid, late February when you really kind of had to start yeah, taking yeah. it seriously. And I, and I remember thinking like, oh, I think part of the reason I, I wasn't so worried is because I just, I wasn't thinking about it as something that was happening while, um, while Trump is president and, you know, he dismantled our pandemic team and, he, he's done a lot of sort of dismantling of the sort of systems that would have been in place 10 years ago that, you know, would have allowed us to manage that much better. And so, yeah, I, I was kind of leaning on, you know, like 40 years of assumptions around the government, the government can generally handle stuff like this. 
but of course, this is exactly the kind of thing I was afraid of when Trump was elected, that he was not going to be running the government in such a way that we could handle disasters. Yeah, it's just, it's it's very easy to, to be complacent and, mm. and to feel like it's not really going to happen to me. It's not going to happen to us. It's not going to happen now this year um, to sort of postpone disaster indefinitely. I mean, I think I snapped, um, I kind of snapped into action quickly. I remember, I remember hearing that a couple of kids in the high school that's like two blocks away from where we live had tested positive for COVID. And I was like, well, we can't go to the gym anymore because the gym mm. is right across from the high school. And they hadn't actually shut anything yet. Yeah. But I was like, well, we shouldn't go. And then we just like didn't go like that day, we basically just stopped going anywhere for like a month. <laughs> you know, it was early March and a few days before we had gone and looked at dinosaur footprints <laughs> yeah. at this this weird kind of nature park in Colorado. Oh, and that was like the last time we saw people in public for a really long time. It makes me think too about just sort of going back to those, that, those like pain and emotion essays that you wrote there's this idea that you repeat a few times, if you believe you're in pain, you're in pain. But of course, like most of the time, we talk about pain as, as again, a kind of objective thing. There's real pain and fake pain, which is, you know, pain that's in your head. And of mm-hmm. course, women are more prone to fake pain than men are. Um, <laughs> where do you think that tendency to dismiss pain and to dismiss these sort of other big, scary things, where do you think that comes from? Yeah, pain is unusual in that, you know, it feels so completely real to us, but it's totally uncommunicable. You know, it's kind of like when it's really hot or it's really cold, like at least you know that other people, (laughs) you have a pretty good idea that other people are feeling something similar to your feeling. (laughs) But I mean, if you just have a migraine, you you can't seem to communicate to people what it actually feels like, even if those people have had a migraine before. If they're not currently in pain, it's just, it's very hard to remember (laughs) what pain feels like when you're not in it. Mm. Yeah, there's this thing called the, it's called something like the hot, cold, I can't remember exactly what it's called. The hot, cold experience paradox, (laughs) something like that. But it's the idea that, yeah, when you're really hot, you cannot remember what it's like to be cold. Like you can't access that, Mm. um, the memory of that feeling at all. And that any kind of really extreme state like that, the theory is that like you basically become a different person. So when you're really, really angry, for example, you become such a totally different person, your whole personality changes. That that's why when you're calm, like you can't really explain your behavior, like what you did when you were angry, because now that you're not angry, you're a different person. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't really remember what it was like, what that feeling was like. So yeah, I, I, I think about that with pain, you know, in part because my husband has a, a chronic illness that it doesn't usually cause physical pain, but it causes a lot of complicated kinds of suffering. Mm. Uh, one of them is that he'll get these, this really terrible tinnitus. And I think people with tinnitus know that it, it feels like you're being tortured because it just, it's just driving, it drives you insane and there's no cure or treatment for tinnitus. And you can't really explain it to other people. And what, what he always says is that he feels like, like he really wants to be able to play it for other people somehow. Mm. Like you, can't, you can't imagine how loud it is. You just can't 
possibly imagine how loud it is. And he wishes he could somehow like record it and make other people listen to it. Or it's like Simone Vale once said that when she had a migraine, she wanted to like hit somebody in the head, right? Exactly where she was feeling <laughs> the pain. So they would, they would know what it was like. <laughs> so I may have wandered a little bit from That's fine. That's <laughs> your, fine. Ori- your original question, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in those kind of those states that can like, that feel so real to us and can't be communicated. And then in that long essay about conversion disorders, what I was exploring is why do we tend to think of like quote unquote psychosomatic illnesses as not real? Mm. We've gotten better about this, but there is this still bizarre tendency to think that if we don't understand a condition entirely, that it's in the person's head and it's not real. But yeah, pain is pain. Well, we're, we're almost out of time, but before we go, what's next for you? What's on your horizon now? Oh yeah. I've, um, I've been trying to finish a book of poems. So back in the mode of writing poetry, they are somewhat essayistic poems. I feel like I'm always kind of sliding on this continuum between (laughs) essay and poetry. Um, and I've been writing a lot of literary criticism, which is sort of comfort writing to me (laughs) after, (laughs) after this, much more difficult material. It's nice to um, just like read a novel (laughs) and think about it. That's what I've been working on. I'll look forward to it. Lisa Gabbert, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. To learn more about Elisa and her writing, visit elisagabbert.com. You can buy The Unreality of Memory from the Macmillan website or anywhere books are sold. Catch Story Behind the Story on the first Friday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m. during the second hour of Talk of the Bay, right here on KSQD 90.7 FM. To share your thoughts on this or other shows, drop me a line at clara at ksqd.org. The Story Behind the Story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our sound engineer is Lanier Sammons. He also wrote our theme. 